Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Before we actually get into the episode, weird moment of serendipity, I checked Twitter before I called you. Guess what's trending on Twitter right now in Australia? What? Percy Jackson! (laughs) Wait, what the f***? Why? It's trending for no reason whatsoever. Like I love that. Everyone was expecting that they had like announced a TV series or a new book or something, but no, no. it's just trending for whatever reason. <laughs> it's just the people's power. The people knew. The people, the people knew. knew. The people have always known. Welcome, everybody, to the Community Library. I'm your host, Angari Rice, and... Harry. <laughs> Harry is back. The fans have been asking. Literally. When I announced that Harry was going to join me for another episode, someone actually commented saying, oh my god, I love Harry, he's so funny. And I sent it to Harry and I said, look, you have a growing fan base. My whole one fan. I love it. I love my one fan. <laughs> I'm, I watch watch me. I'm going to I'm going to rule over the podcast world. Actually, the most listened to episode from the podcast is me and you talking about the first Percy Jackson book. Really? Really? 2000 listens. That's distressing that 2000 people have listened to that. But it's exciting and we're back again we're back to again. talk about Percy Jackson and the Olympians, colon, The Sea of Monsters by Rick Riordan. So previously, Harry and I talked about Percy Jackson and The Lightning Thief, the book. And then we also did a, an episode on the movie adaptation. So those episodes were called Percy Jackson and the Confusing Prophecies. That was about the book. The movie episode was called Percy Jackson and the Questionable Adaptation. I don't know what I'm going to call the episode about the second movie because that is also a very questionable adaptation. <laughs> the Confusing Adaptation, the sequel. First of all, let's do a recap of what happened in the first book. Oh, God. Yeah, because we're, we're looking at the second book now. So we've just got to do a quick recap. Don't worry, I've written it down here. You don't have to rack <laughs> your brains, Harry. <laughs> Lovely. I don't remember anything. <laughs> so <laughs> 12-year-old Percy Jackson discovers that he is a demigod. The Greek gods are real and alive and they have demigod children around America. And Percy Jackson goes to Camp Half-Blood for the summer where another bunch of demigods are there. It's revealed that he's the son of Poseidon. Whoa, shock horror. That's very important. (laughs) At Camp Half-Blood, he discovers that Zeus's lightning bolt has been stolen. That is also very important because he has to retrieve it. They send a 12-year-old out on a quest to retrieve Zeus's lightning bolt. Yeah, why wouldn't you? He goes with his friends Annabeth, who is the daughter of Athena, and Grover, who is a satyr, aka half-goat, and they go on this quest. Turns out the villain all along was Luke, who's another demigod back at camp, and he framed Percy as the thief of the lightning bolt. And Luke is working for Kronos, who is a titan who was cut up into lots of pieces and chucked into the depths of Tartarus, but he is stirring in Tartarus and he is going to come back to life and start another war with the gods. And that's where we ended the first book. Boom. Right? Do you have anything to add or dispute? I, I don't think that I dispute anything at this point. My passionate opinions will come later on about really stupid things. Okay, great. 
Next, we join the story. Percy Jack. I'm talking nonsense. I'm one glass of wine in. I can't string together a coherent sentence. It's the way that it should be. We begin the second story. By the way, I've taken this straight from Goodreads. This is not my writing. Scandal. Percy Jackson's seventh grade year has been surprisingly quiet. Not a single monster has set foot on his New York prep school campus. But when an innocent game of dodgeball among Percy and his classmates turns into a death match against an ugly gang of cannibal giants, things get, well, ugly. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Literally written like that. <laughs> and the unexpected arrival of Percy's friend Annabeth brings more bad news. The magical borders that protect Camp Half-Blood have been poisoned by a mysterious enemy. Unless a cure is found, the only safe haven for demigods will be destroyed. Percy and his friends must journey into the Sea of Monsters to save their beloved camp. But first, Percy will discover a stunning new secret about his family, one that makes him question whether being claimed as Poseidon's son is an honour or simply a cruel joke. What? Ah. Oh. So oh. that is in reference to... <laughs> Percy has befriend... Befriended... <laughs> 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 Percy befriends Tyson, who's like this awkward kid at school. He's bullied. And then they go to Camp Half-Blood and he discovers that Tyson is actually half-Cyclops. And also Percy's half-brother. He's not half-Cyclops. He's full-Cyclops. He's half-Cyclops. He's half-Cyclops, half-God. What? No. His dad was Poseidon. Yeah. His mum is a Cyclops. No, Cyclops are just children of Poseidon. His full cyclops. Okay. His full, trust. Trust me. I did. I did history of ancient Greece and Rome. I, I can show you my my academic transcript. I read half of the Odyssey and then gave up. <laughs> wow. Excuse me. I didn't realize I was talking to someone who read half of the Odyssey. Half. Half of the Odyssey. That's actually half more than I read. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Tyson is a full cyclops. Everyone. So that's that's the general overview, right? Percy takes Annabeth and Tyson on this quest into the Sea of Monsters to find the Golden Fleece, which will save the camp. It'll bring the tree back to life and save the camp. Because this is the second book, I want to talk about how this is very different because we're not introducing the audience to a new world. We have this established world and these established characters because this book still has to connect with the readers, right? It still has to connect with the original fans of the first book, but also remind everyone what happened in the first book because this came out a year later. I mean, it kind of just reintroduces the world. I, I hate it. I hate I hate it when books... <laughs> <laughs> this, is gonna, this is just going to be me shit-talking again for an entire hour, even though this is literally, okay. like, all I read. Okay, but go ahead. Bear with me. You hate um, it when, comma. I, I hate when books, like when a sequel book feels the need to reintroduce everything. I hate it. It Nothing, nothing fuels my fire worse than <laughs> all the like tween books do it. Oh, last summer when I found out that I was a demigod. Oh, the Every good old days. Single... I hate it. No, no. It's not only tween books, Harry. It's every single book in a series has well, they to all, do this. No, they all no, need they, to fuck off. I hate it. No, they have to do this. Do you know why? Because it's been a whole year, sometimes two years, since the first book came out, right? And some people can't be fucked reading it again. Excuse me. That was a little bit from, from me. I get, I get like the, the slight recap, 
you know, I can stand by a slight recap, but the whole, like, recapping everything, you know, no. I read the, the third Percy Jackson book, right? Sometime after I had read the second and it was like a few months and I had basically forgotten everything that happened in the second and because it was the third book they didn't like recap everything as much but I had forgotten so much that I had to go to Wikipedia and read through the Wikipedia synopsis of the second book to remind myself what happened. What did you need reminding of? I forgot everything. There is not that much to these I books. I forgot everything. I was like, wait a second. Who's Talia? Why is she back? Oh my god. Genuinely. Okay, so maybe it's made for the, the more simple-minded readers. Ooh. <laughs> Sick bet. Mm. What we've learned from this discussion is that Harry hates it when they recap the book. Yeah. They get it all out of the way in the first few chapters. We're reintroduced to the world. But also I think this one takes on a slightly older tone because it's the second book and because the audience has grown and become older. Yeah, we're 13 now We're 13 now. We're teenagers. It's exciting times. Truly, this is when like the puberty really hits (laughs) and you feel all those emotions. The hormones are raging. Hormones are raging like a bull. Oh, I was gonna, ooh. yeah. See what ooh, I did there? Integration. The, like the, yeah. But I feel like we can see that this book is for a slightly older audience because we get our first death, in quotation marks, of course. Who dies? Tyson for like a hot second, but then he comes back. When does Tyson die? Harry, I swear to God, you don't remember anything. Tyson <laughs> doesn't die. Gets- I mean, he, they think he dies, but he doesn't. Is this when he gets rescued by that weird fish horse thing? Yeah, but we don't see that happen. So what happens is Percy, Annabeth, and Tyson go on their quest. They accidentally go into Luke's ship, and then they escape from Luke's ship, and they go into Clarice's ship. Clarice's ship blows up, and Percy and Annabeth escape, but they think that Tyson has died. And so we are faced with these like more serious consequences that we didn't have in the first book. And even though Tyson comes back, it turns out he didn't actually die after all, which I knew was going to happen. But <laughs> it's it's suddenly this like um, reality check that this is more real and we're going to explore some more mature themes and that the the series is going to progress as the audience gets older, much like in Harry Potter. We're teaching the 13-year-olds about mortality. Exactly. There's a there's a learning curve here. There is, as is with every book. I think we should move on to Where in the World. This is a segment where we talk about settings, and I think this is really important because we have a new setting, which the is ocean. the title of the book, The Ocean. <laughs> Would you care to talk about this, Harry? Uh, where, even, where do they put the Sea of Monsters in this book? Do they? Oh, it's the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, true. It's the Bermuda Triangle. I forgot about that. Wait, wait, where's the Bermuda Triangle? (laughs) Give me more geography. I don't know. Okay, hang on, hang on, (laughs) hang on. I'm Googling it. Google Maps just says Bermuda Triangle, four stars out of five, 17,000 reviews, (laughs) water. (laughs) (laughs) It's off the coast of Florida. I mean, it's like far, far, far to the east from Florida. But talk to me about the Sea of Monsters, Harry. Uh, It's a fun little ocean full of monsters. It really is self-descriptive. I don't know what else to say about the Sea of Monsters, though. Like, it's just, it's chillin'. We can talk about how 
unlike in the first book. We're, we're in the water now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the first book was a road trip, right? It was a road trip from New York to California. And what we saw in the first book was the real world and then Percy discovering the mythical world that was hidden underneath the real world. Whereas in The Sea of Monsters, it's completely mythical. You don't have anything masking as um, something real. Only in The Sea of Monsters, though. There's still bits where they touch on fake real world. There's monster donuts. Can't forget the monster donuts. Oh, the monster donuts. Yeah, of course. But, but that's the, not in the, the ocean. The sea of monsters in the ocean, that's kind of when all the rules go out the window and we yeah. truly are on this mythical journey that is not pretending to be something else hidden under the real world, you know? Yeah. So for this episode, I was kind of writing notes for it and I, I feel like the themes of the book are actually given out to each of the members that travel on this quest. So as we mentioned before, Clarice is given the quest. She is the daughter of Ares. She's kind of the, the antagonist at Camp Half-Blood. But Percy decides to go on this quest because why not? And so Percy goes on this Selfish. quest too. Yeah, he really he really is. He he goes on this quest too and he takes Tyson and Annabeth with him and they go on this parallel quest with Clarice. I want to talk about Percy being the chosen one because in the first book, he has to come to terms with the fact that he is special. Something was mentioned about him in a prophecy. He doesn't know what. He knows that he's special because he is the only son of one of the major three gods, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades. In this book, we are introduced to Tyson and it's Percy has, he kind of goes through this identity crisis because he feels ashamed that he is Tyson's brother. Yeah, I find it so amusing in the books. I just like, Why? it's just like Percy whinging for like no good reason. He's like, oh, I have a brother. Mm, my life's so hard. Like, shush. Like, it's just so, I don't know. I mean, I get it. I get what they were going for. You know, ugh, monsters. Gross. But also like, how did he not know? Like, I know like the I know, mist Percy and shit, is such but a like. Dumb, Percy is such a dumb f- I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. Like, so he's stupid. so stupid. <laughs> Like, I love him so much, but he's so dumb. He doesn't realize that he's a cyclops for, like, the first hundred pages or something. And he's like, what? He's a cyclops? He's not mortal? There is, I feel like there is a good reason for Percy being upset that Tyson is his half-brother. Because he has to share his glory. And I feel like that is, that's a difficult thing for him. But I don't, I don't think that that is what it is. I don't think it's sharing glory. I think it's like he's detrimental to the glory because everyone's like, ew, Cyclops, grotty. That's true. That's true. Either way, he feels... Yeah, he feels deglorified because he's a schmuck. Yeah, he feels like his reputation is somewhat damaged and he doesn't know how to deal with that because he's 13. (laughs) Every time that we acknowledge that he's 13, I just like... (laughs) (laughs) it's so stupid like why is he 13 okay anyway that's a different matter um how old is tyson supposed to be he's a cyclops so surely he's old no but i remember them saying he's a baby cyclops so he's got like the mental capacity of like an eight or nine year old (laughs) brutal i know that That is a nine year old is tagging along on this quest but he's a cyclops so it's different 
It's fine. He's a cyclops. We've gotten off track. I have no idea what we're supposed to be talking about right now. No, 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 you're right. We're talking about Percy and how he has to come to terms with the fact that he is not the only son of Poseidon. The major adversity that is being not an only child. Having siblings. Life's hard. But he says, there's there's a quote here. He says, As much as I liked the big guy, I couldn't help feeling embarrassed, ashamed. There, I said it. So that's Percy talking about Tyson and about how he's his brother. And I think it's more than the fact that he's a cyclops and a little different from everyone else. Because when he was picked on in the mortal world, Percy was like ready to come to his aid. You know, he defended him. Mm. It's only when he was identified as the son of Poseidon at the first camp meeting that Percy felt somewhat affronted that he wasn't the only special one. See, I personally would disagree. And I would... (laughs) I would argue that the entire purpose of Tyson's character is as a foreshadowing and narrative tool of the big bad, which is Polyphemus. Or Polyphemus? Well, Polyphemus, I think. Polyphemus. Because then they get that whole sort of duality of, like, is he a bad Cyclops or a good Cyclops? And then they get to talk about Annabeth's trauma with her Cyclops. And like, I think it's like, that's the only reason why Tyson is a Cyclops. Yes, I agree that the reason he's a Cyclops is because we need to have that discussion about prejudice in the God world, right? Yeah. But I think the reason that he has made Percy's brother is to purposefully make Percy feel uncomfortable and question his identity and his relationship with his dad. Yeah. Okay. Because he's felt special (laughs) up... (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) But I also think that this points to this bigger kind of narrative, and that's a narrative that we see in the original Greek myths of jealousy within families. I mean, all of the gods are related, right? The original Greek myths, like when reading them, feel like one deadly episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Like everyone- (laughs) Thought you were gonna say Game of Thrones. (laughs) No. Everyone is related. Everyone has their own personal grudge. And often we see these stories lead to people killing their mothers or their brothers or their sisters or their fathers. Like it's- There's a lot of murder within a family. I think this brings up an issue that we've never had to tackle before that that wasn't tackled in the first book because Percy was an only child. And that's the issue of family relations because he's an only child, single mother, but he's, he's never had that added complication to his life. And then when you bring Tyson into the equation, we suddenly see more of these Greek myths coming and how everyone is related. There's a lot of jealousy entangled up in that and a lot of emotions there's power dynamics totally so the big guiding force in this novel is hermes right hermes sees percy at the beginning of the novel and says you should go on this quest and then hermes sees him at the end and he's like well done you did the quest (laughs) but at the end hermes says to percy families are messy immortal families are eternally messy Sometimes the best we can do is to remind each other that we're related, for better or worse. I just think it's funny because it's like when you juxtapose it against Luke and Hermes. Yeah. Hermes is a god and then Luke is a murdering little shit and then Percy's complaining about his brother just being there. Like, 
stop complaining. Anyway, sorry, I can't stop. You can't stop complaining? <laughs> yeah, 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 look at me. Sorry, I really keep derailing the conversation. Um, no, no. Family, yeah, no, I agree. Families is definitely, like, a central theme. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about Percy is that he actually does share his glory of the quest at the end. Yeah, he let he lets Clarice take the 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 what is it? I want to call it a rug. It's not a rug. The, the golden fleece. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we must get this rug. We must get this sheepskin the rug. rug. I was just imagining, like, a little sheepskin rug, you know? Yeah, I mean... Anyway, uh, wh- yeah, what am I talking to you about? About how Percy, he trusts Clarice and he gives her the golden fleece at the end. Ah, yeah, I have mixed feelings about this. One side of the coin, he did all the On one the side of the drachma. <laughs> On one side of the drachma, he did, like, everything that was required to get the fleece. He did the hard yards, but also, like, Clarice's quest... And Percy probably should have just, like, not... I mean, no, he shouldn't have, because, like, it was the only way that it was going to get done. But, like, like I, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, he did the moral thing by giving her the fleece. Because, like, otherwise, like, she would have been all sad and shit, you know? Well, it required him to make a sacrifice as well. A sacrifice of the glory. Yeah. And the fame. Which he's not very good at. He's a bit of an egotistical bastard at times. At times, but I think he, I think he realized, you know, having the pain of Tyson gone and realizing, oh wait, I can actually like do things for people and not get the success and fame of it. Oh, is Tyson dead at this point? No, no, Tyson isn't dead. But when Tyson goes, he's like, oh damn, like I really miss right. him. Yeah. Like I wish I hadn't been. I wish I hadn't felt so awful about it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about Tyson after I go to the toilet? I need a pee. Sure. Okay, I'm back. I hate Tyson. You hate Tyson? I hate Tyson. (gasps) Controversial, Harry. I just think he's annoying. I mean, I feel like I could take Tyson or Grover, but not both. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But also, like, Grover, so much more superior, and also just, like, neither. Wow. <laughs> That's my spicy hot take for the for the episode. Spicy hot take on Tyson, but don't you feel bad for him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I don't mean, like, like I'm not, like, f*** Tyson, you know? But also, like, <laughs> I don't want to read about him, you know? Every bit that's about him, I'm like, ugh, I don't care. Would you say, I feel like he's, like, the Neville of this book, right? Oh, he's such a... No, but Neville's kind of... Neville's... How do we say, uh, likable? How? I don't know. See, see, I find Neville a bit more sort of like, ugh, you're fat and ugly, but like you're a bit lovable. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's like he, his, his, his flaws are more superficial. Whereas Tyson's just like dumb. I guess Neville's kind of stupid as well. Um, no, Tyson fixes the issue with the boat when they're about to be, like, absorbed by Scylla. Not Scylla, the other one. Charybdis. Okay, but, like, I mean, maybe I just don't like children. You know how he's meant to be, like, kind of eight, nine in, like, mentality? He, he reads very young and immature. Yeah, I hate that. I hate children. Okay. Let's okay. See, okay, this is more reflective of me than anyone and else. you can quote Harry on that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate children. I that's hate my, children. That's my standing. 
No, I see. I I remember reading, even like when I reread it. You know the the transition from the first book to the second book. I always have this jarring like, ugh, it's tiresome. <laughs> and I reckon the second book is one of my least favorite books of the series. And I think that a large part of that is probably about Tyson's presence. I feel like Tyson is a carbon copy of Grover, but they just represent different things. And I feel like you don't need both. But he's also like a shittier version. Like he's like Grover has fun interactions with the other characters. Whereas Tyson's interactions with the other characters are like, I'm a big baby, but I'm strong. Putting your personal feelings for Tyson aside. Okay, we'll stop bullying Tyson for the moment. Can we talk about what he represents and the kind of prejudice that he represents in the world of Percy Jackson? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like the whole classic, don't judge a book by its cover... A boy might only have one eye, but that doesn't mean that he's going to kill your family and friends. You know, the classic. Classic, yeah. But when I was thinking about this, you know, Tyson really has rotten luck because he is excluded from the three worlds that he could possibly exist in. He's excluded from the mortal world because the kids pick on him at school. Mm -hmm. He's excluded from the god world because he's a cyclops. And he's excluded from the monster world because he fraternizes with demigods. Correct. He doesn't fit in anywhere. And that's awful. Maybe they just all realized he was annoying. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. No, I mean, to me, it's just like, it's such an on-the-nose representation of being an outcast. And I feel like they can almost, like, that they're already telling that story with everyone, kind of, like, with all of the central characters, because, like, Percy himself is an outcast. Like, him being a son of Poseidon makes him an outcast, you know? And all of the demigods are outcasts because they're demigods. I mean, the one benefit that I do get is, like, they have the duality of Percy and Tyson being together, but also completely sort of isolated in their own experiences. I do think it brings to the forefront this discussion on prejudice that hasn't been talked about before in the Percy Jackson series. Yeah. Because I think it also talks about prejudice within the world of the gods. You know, before we had prejudice within the world of the humans, like Percy had dyslexia and he didn't do as well at school because of that. But he found the world of the demigods and that was his safe haven, whereas once you bring Tyson into the world of the demigods, there is still exclusion within that world and there are prejudices within that world that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's like 13-year-olds should get that ideology, you know, get that learning curve. But I, I do think that the future books explore that same theme in a way that's more applicable to the audience and more mm. easier to sort of take in without hating the character. Only um, you hate the character, no, Harry. I, okay. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know why. But like they explore it through other characters and still sort of in that idea of like within the world of the gods, there's, you know, exclusion against certain gods and certain things and certain people. Mm. Maybe it's also just because it's like the reason that Tyson is being excluded is because he's a monster. I don't know. It seems superficial. and And like, I guess that's kind of... The whole point is that it is superficial mm. and then it it's overcome because it is superficial. 
Like, I feel like it would be more interesting if it was deeper ingrained and it was more ongoing. You know, like, even if he overcome stuff, they still persecuted him. Whereas they just sort of kind of all accept him by the end. Well, because he's argued as the exception, right? He's not argued as the standard. Because the idea is that monsters are always these villainous obstacles and Tyson is the exception. He is the kind one. Which is also strange because he joins a whole, like, flock of cyclopses. Is that the correct collective term for a for a group of cyclopes. Also, it's cyclopes, not cyclopses. Cyclopes. Yeah, I googled it today. Cyclopes. Okay. Flock of a cyclopes. Flock of cyclopes. <laughs> I don't know. Tried whatever. Tried tribe. I meant to say tribe. Tribe of cyclopes. I don't know, but they have their whole little flock. I don't know that there's. He goes and makes weapons and shit, which means that they're, and and they're like kind of good. You know, they're not evil. Yes, but. The overall attitude towards monsters doesn't change because of Tyson, and I think that's something that's important to note. The world of the demigods accepts Tyson as the exception, but, and I I know this because I read it yesterday, (laughs) the scene where they're battling Polyphemus, right, who is the big cyclops that guards the fleece, they're battling Polyphemus, and Percy tries talking him into sense, right, and talking to him using reason and logic and being nice, but... Polyphemus is like, oh yeah, okay, and then he still attacks Percy, he tricks him, he doesn't appeal to the human side, you know, that doesn't work on him. So it shows us that even though Tyson is the exception, all the monsters are still rotten to the core, they're still monsters, and Tyson is the only one who's kind of redeemable, and the overall attitude towards monsters doesn't change. Yeah, I mean, in again, in future books, I think that's readjusted a little bit. I think we should talk about Annabeth next because she is the second, the third most prominent person on this quest, right? Miss Manhattan. What? That Ms. sounds Manhattan? like a stripper name, but it's quite the opposite. Because she read, <laughs> she like thinks that she can redesign Manhattan. I mean, she can, like that, like she could, but also like what the fuck? Like how can she redesign Manhattan? So the most important thing to talk about Annabeth is hubris, right? Hubris, hubris. Hubris. Oh, okay. Hubris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really don't know how you would say that. I think it's it's either hubris or hubris. Yeah, I'm leaning towards hubris. Oh, really? Because I was leaning towards hubris. <laughs> I should, like, this is one of the things that we talked about the most in my subject at uni, and I couldn't tell you. God damn it, you're a university-educated man, Harry. You should know. And yet... I don't. And yet. <laughs> and, and yet, yet I fail in all aspects <laughs> of knowledge. What, what are we supposed to be talking about right now? Hubris. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, excessive pride for those amateurs at home that don't know ancient Greek. Hey, don't shame the audience. <laughs> Consider yourself shamed. If you don't know what hubris <laughs> is or hubris, shame. Did you just say humorous? Is that the... F- oh, it's the funny bone. Because humor. Haha. <laughs> Yeah, that's not what hubris is. I know, I didn't say humorous. I said hubris. Yes, I mean, you did. No, I said hubris. Okay. <laughs> I, in good the, luck editing this. In the words of Annabeth, Annabeth says, quote, Hubris means deadly pride, Percy, thinking you can do things better than anyone else, even the gods, end quote. 
we discover this when on their journey in the Sea of Monsters, they encounter the sirens. And Annabeth decides that she wants to hear the sirens. If you hear the sirens sing, then you like want to basically drown yourself because they're evil. But if you survive (laughs) hearing... It's true. If you survive hearing the sirens sing, then you are wiser because they show you what you most want in the world. So Annabeth decides to hear the sirens sing and she does. And she obviously like cuts herself free and tries to drown herself. And Percy saves her. And when he saves her and he touches her, he sees what she sees. And she sees... I was going to call you Percy, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Percy now. (laughs) Do you want to describe what she sees, Harry? Um, So she sees her cute little family all together. It's her mum, Athena, as you do, and her father sitting on the shore of Manhattan, which she has redesigned because apparently that's a thing you can do now. You've forgotten one very important. Oh yeah, 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 and she's uh, and Luke's there because she wants to fuck him. Okay, PG thirteen, please. She wants to have nightly conjugations with this man. Conjugations? I don't know what's the word. <laughs> Conjugation is what you do to a verb. You conjugate a verb. What? <laughs> okay. She would like to canoodle with yeah, Luke. She just really wants to canoodle with Luke, which is a bit awkward because. Her and Percy are all flirty, flirty, and then he is watching her fantasize about Mr. Evil. When Percy sees it, he thinks that he is looking into the past, but when he sees that Manhattan is completely redesigned by Annabeth, he realizes that he's looking into an alternate future, a future that could be possible if certain events in the past hadn't happened, right? And giving Annabeth the ability to redesign an entire city. (laughs) Well, that's what she says, is that she talks about having a clean slate and having this pride that thinking that she can do something better than the gods, that she can do things better than anyone else. And and she realises that the sirens not only show her what she wants the most in the world but also what her fatal flaw is. Mm. And can you imagine, as a 12-year-old, seeing what you want the most and then realising that what you want the most is also your biggest flaw? Uh, That's awful. Yeah, but it'd also be, like, the best therapy session. No, she's fully traumatised after that. What, like, exposure Okay, but, like, once you moved... Yeah, yeah, once you moved through the trauma... (laughs) (laughs) Like, you'd be, you'd be A-OK, you'd be golden. You wouldn't ever need therapy again. Well, it's amazing that she realises that that is her fatal flaw and she has that self-awareness. Well, I reckon she already knows. I think that she's smart enough that, like, she knows that that's her fatal flaw and then when she sees it, she's like, haha, yeah, that's my fatal flaw. Yeah. And that's what makes her so susceptible to Luke. I don't think the reason for her weakness for Luke is because she has a crush on him or she had a crush on him. That's not the only reason, in my opinion. The other reason is that she is so susceptible to the villain's cause. Luke has this grand idea that you will scrap everything on Olympus and build it up from the bottom so that the future generations will have a better experience. And I think in her core, that's what Annabeth wants because she went through so much trauma when she was just seven years old. When Luke joins Kronos, he represents that possibility that if you destroy everything, then we can make a new world that is better than the one that we have now. 
That's my hot take. Spicy hot take. I get I get your vibes. I I picture her as like very patriotic to the gods. <laughs> like I don't She is because well cuz that's the side she chooses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't think that she has that ideology of Oh, well, I guess she kind of does have the idea of the clean slate thing, but I don't think that in practice she would ever think to destroy in order to build herself up. No, not in practice, but she's tempted by it. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I think that's where her internal conflict comes from. But of course, like, we see her true character is in what she chooses to believe, and she chooses to believe in the gods, Ultimately, yeah. that's what she chooses. Yeah, but it, it, the whole um, sort of little passage introduces an ongoing idea, which I think is really interesting, which is the whole idea of fatal flaws. And that is sort of an ongoing topic throughout the entirety of the series and even the second series as well. It, another ripoff of The Odyssey, <laughs> because I think um, from memory... Odysseus's fatal flaw is also hubris? Is it? Don't look at me. I have no idea. I mean, I didn't... Give me two seconds. What does he do? He... Do you want me to Google it? Hubris, excessive pride, says answers.com. Trustworthy source. (laughs) Yeah. So, so again, it's like an idea that's pulled from, like, the old Greek myths that you know, heroes are going to have these fatal flaws. Wait, one. Yeah? Pizza time. Pizza. Oh, but I'm in the middle of recording an episode. Oh, oh. Can you tell mommy? Pizza can... waits for no one. <laughs> Pizza waits for no one, <laughs> says Calliope. Do you have anything on for the rest of tonight? Oh, no. Can we pause for pizza and come back? <laughs> sure, you can have I'm a pizza so break sorry. in Gary. Okay, I will be like 15 minutes. Editing and Gowrie coming in here just to reassure you that the rest of the episode uh, gets worse. Um, When I went to dinner, I unplugged my microphone so I could let my computer charge. And then when I came back, I forgot to plug in my microphone again. So uh, the second half of this audio is recorded through my computer and it's really terrible quality and I'm very sorry. Um... Hopefully the next episode that we do on Percy Jackson is going to be much more put together. (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to mention in the Isle of uh, Hubris is that Athena is closely linked with Hubris because she is the wisest of the gods and she is very self-aware but like all gods and this is the other thing is that hubris can work two ways it can be a mortal thinking they can do things better than the gods but it can also be the excessive pride of gods knowing that they are the all powerful beings that they are yeah it's funny because uh, athena is actually like the principal god in the odyssey so she is the one that sort of guides odysseus through that whole journey and I think it's actually kind of strange that they used Hermes instead of Athena in this book. Because it really does feel like an ode to the Odyssey. So I thought that it was a bit strange. I mean, why would Athena help them? It's not Annabeth's quest. Yeah, I think that like in the narrative arc that we're given in the story, it makes sense that it's Hermes. But the ideologies that are explored and stuff, you know, sort of more closely align to Athena. Which I think is why it's like why Athena is used in the Odyssey 
because it does explore that idea of pride and and also like self-awareness and um endurance and being wise enough to see like the end goal do we want to talk about clarice because clarice is the fourth member of our quest i feel like we're gonna have differing opinions okay what are your feelings on her why do you think we're gonna have such differing opinions i don't vibe with clarice you don't vibe with Clarice. I don't vibe with Clarice. She's a bully. I don't know. Like I don't think like, she's someone you're supposed to vibe with. Yeah. She's not a particularly vibey person. That's true. I mean, it, to be fair, in future books, I do appreciate her more. She is the Draco Malfoy. You know, she is the school antagonist. And she refuses help from anyone else. And that's what I really want to talk about because she's the one who hears the prophecy. And the camp director says, you can take three heroes with you on this journey. But when Percy and Annabeth and Tyson meet up with her, she doesn't have anyone else with her. She couldn't find anyone else. No one else wanted to come on the quest with her because she doesn't have any friends. She, she is such a solitary person like you said, she's so quick to punch anyone that she <laughs> believes she believes that she doesn't need any help from anyone. She can do it by herself. Yeah. I mean, I, to an extent, I'm sort of like, well, f*** you, go on the quest alone, you know? like. But then also, like, you know... She's a kid. She probably saves their lives at some point, surely. Does she? She must. Oh, well, she picks them up on the boat. She, she is essentially on their team you know she's yeah. not on also, so what team. what is this what's it called um prophecy what's the prophecy it's clarice's prophecy and we only hear about it at the very end and it is and i quote you shall sail the iron ship with warriors of bone you shall find what you seek and make it your own but despair for your life entombed within stone and fail without friends to fly home alone. Yes. Ah, it all comes back to me. Once we hear it at the end, we realize what her internal struggle has been this whole time. And that is that she believes she can do this alone. But the prophecy has told her that she needs friends to complete her quest. And she rejects that. She doesn't want to. Who the f*** doesn't listen to a prophecy? Like, get over yourself. Bitch, I wouldn't listen to a prophecy. I yeah, hate well, the prophecies. You know my feeling yourself. on this. If I got a f***ing prophecy, I would listen to the prophecy. Like, even, like, I might be like, ugh, well, you know, it yeah, might not be what I you... want it to be. You argued in our first episode that either way, like, no matter if you listen to it or don't, the prophecy will come true anyway. Yeah, exactly. So if you're told, like, you're going to fail without friends, you might as well accept that you're going to have to have friends. But what she, yeah, but what she says, but that's her internal conflict. What she says is, like, nobody wanted to come on this quest with me. She couldn't find anyone right. on her quest with yeah, her. Okay. That's depressing. So you're arguing that she couldn't find the friends. Yeah, because she doesn't not she doesn't have that ability within her. You know, she is not that type of person. She wants to make war, not love. <laughs> Sorry, she's. It's not that she's not the type of person to make friends. It's just that she struggles making friends. Because in later books, we see her make friends, but she has issues with that, and she wants to believe that she can do everything alone because that's been so ingrained into her. Every character in this series is like just an ego, ego driven little child twat. Dude, this is, okay, this comes to my, like, theory about the entire book. Oh, I sense a spicy hot take coming. Here is my spicy hot take. We covered all four people in our quest, right? Yes. 
Here is my oh, spicy well, we haven't hot take. Grover. Are we even going to talk about Grover? Grover is the same as he was last book. Like, and let's kind be of irrelevant. Super irrelevant. He's the damsel he is... in distress. We don't care about her. No, we don't. I mean, no, we don't. He's <laughs> not important in this. He's the catalyst, but he's not important. He's not on the quest. No, you know? no. My spicy hot take on this novel is that it's all about this idea of the transformative journey. In Greek mythology, we have lots of heroes. All of our heroes go on some sort of quest or journey. Think about like Heracles and Odysseus and Jason and Theseus. And on these journeys, they encounter all these various tasks. And these tasks prove their strength and their endurance and their wit and their cunning and all of these things. But overall, I think in this context of Percy Jackson, Percy has all of these tasks where he has to prove his strength and his courage and his bravery and his wit. But overall, every single person in this book comes out transformed by the Sea of Monsters. As you said, they're all egotistical children who have their own problems. But by the end, Percy realizes that he has to share the spotlight sometimes. Mm -hmm. Tyson realizes that he's not a monster. He has worth and he's valid. I know, how cute. Annabeth realizes her fatal flaw And she also realizes that she can reject that and she has the power to choose which side she wants to go on, you know, Mm -hmm. in the war. And Clarice realizes that she needs friends to help her sometimes, that she can't do everything by herself. So each one of them sets out on this journey thinking one particular thing and then through the course of the events they come out changed people. And that's, I mean, that's the narrative, that should be the narrative arc for like every single book. The characters begin one way and then through the course of events they are changed. But I think, I think this is even more important and highlighted even more than in the first book. All these characters come out changed people. I think it's also interesting that all of those characters have a transformation where they realize the importance of teamwork. Yeah. Which is disgusting. Don't, don't hate on it. (laughs) Feel the love, Harry, feel the love. I'm living my isolation lifestyle. There's no team (laughs) in isolation. Everyone has to stay one and a half meters away from me. There are two eyes in isolation. (laughs) (laughs) No team. Me, myself, and I. (laughs) Um, But I I do think that that is the central within all Mm. of the sort of character progression. And it comes back to friendship and family. Yeah. It's very Percy Jackson. How cute, though. Yeah, cute vibes. Wait, so you don't reject my spicy hot take? I don't think so. What was there to reject? Thanks. You, like, disagree with me on everything. I mean, that's my goal in life, but... <laughs> but on this... Yeah, I don't... I, don't, I agree. The, oh spi- the spicy hot take has been accepted. <gasps> Point to me. Yeah. Can we talk about Hermes? I feel like for for once, like, we get a god that you can take at face value. Like, he seems... I mean, he is tricky. He's also the god of thieves, to be fair. Yeah. But, which is, like, interesting. But everything he says in this book, like, he's very sincere. You know? Yeah. He, he doesn't play mind games. He's not tricky. He tells Percy, like, you should go on this quest. Actually, I think now that be great. you say that, that's really strange. That yeah. he's basically one of the only gods who doesn't play mind games in the books. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to hold a grudge. And he's the god of trickery. Weird. Rick, ride and explain. <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> Confused. <Yeah. laughs> 
<gasps> yeah, maybe he's just like hashtag not like other gods. <laughs> yeah. But he he is he's helpful, you know. He gives Percy the canister of the winds. Okay, sorry. Sidetrack from Hermes. Can we talk about how this is, you mentioned this before, how this is literally the Odyssey light. Oh yeah, with, with the, the bag of winds or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I did some research into this and as I'm sure you know, like as someone who read half of the Odyssey and then gave up, <laughs> Percy's journey basically mimics Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War. Yeah. No, I remember because like, obviously I read this before I read the Odyssey because I wasn't like... <laughs> some child that was just like you know casually whipping out greek mythology but i remember reading the odyssey or the first half at least and just each page i turned i was like oh my god this is like the hardcore version of percy jackson and the sea of monsters is there anything else you want to talk about uh any final spicy hot takes i, th- I think i'm out of spicy hot takes i think i'm that's a first i'm fr- i'm fresh out well, what are your final thoughts then on Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters? Um, 10 out of 10 would read again, but also like 3 out of 10 in the Percy Jackson world. 3 out of 10? I mean, like if I stacked up all 10, it's one of my least favorites. I thought I liked it less than the first one, but then when I reread it and when I was writing notes on it, I was actually like, this is interesting. Like, I think there are a lot more interesting things to talk about. I think the mythology, super duper cool. A-OK, love it. But the, I don't know, Tyson. <laughs> you just have a particular grudge against Tyson. I do, and, and that's I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. That is um, your own bias. But also just like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like it contributes less to the overarching narrative of the entire series. Yeah, I didn't love the whole sequence with Polyphemus and the Golden Fleece. Like, I didn't think the actual climax was very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so so final rating out of five, though. Oh, uh, you know, a soft three, maybe a two. I rated the first one three, and so I feel like this one is two and a half. It's like, it's fine. Yeah, but it's like, it's fine, you know? Hey, it's not a it's not a terrible book. I didn't have a terrible time. No, it's very enjoyable. Before we go, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, follow me on Instagram. It's my life's aspiration to be famous. Um, <laughs> Wait, you sure follow Harry on TikTok? Oh God, no! Please don't, don't, don't <laughs> follow me on TikTok. If you find me on TikTok, leave. <laughs> Okay, what's your Instagram, Harry? Tell them. My, my Instagram is harry.l with three R's because I'm edgy. And also harry.l with two R's was taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> Follow him on Instagram. It's his life dream to become an influencer. It's genuinely the only reason he does the podcast episodes. So <laughs> if you want more episodes with Harry, then follow him on Instagram and he'll continue agreeing to come back. I'll, I'll be back. Give me like two Instagram followers and I'll be back. Well, we're definitely going to be back to talk about the movie adaptation, which I am so excited for. I'm so ready. But we'll get to that next time. Stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> Finally, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. 
You can follow me on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library, or you can tweet me at Angari Rice and use the hashtag the community library on Instagram or Twitter. I also run a blog where you can find full transcriptions and extra notes and resources. The podcast artwork is designed by Ashley Running. You can visit her website at ashleyrunning.com or you can go to helio-press.com. That's dash the symbol. Finally, stay at home, wash your hands, <laughs> read a book. <laughs> um, and thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'll never, ever be able to end one of these seriously.